And I invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to a passage we looked most at, Luke uh, chapter 23. And uh, Mr. James Canis is going to read God's Word for us at this time. Luke chapter 23. James. My papers are stuck. I'm sorry. Good morning. And that's on page 1641 in your pew Bibles. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. The word of the Lord. Thank you, James. We are in the middle of a series on Jesus' uh, seven last words from the cross. And uh, this morning we're looking at that last verse where Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. So sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, it seems there's always a difference when we read the Bible between the things that we want to hear and the things perhaps that God wants us to hear from a certain text. Not that they are necessarily contradictory, but there always seems to be at least a little bit of difference there. For instance, one of the things that we want to know in life in general is what happens after we die. And that's a, it's a human thing. Um, go to any funeral, and that question is sort of hanging out there in the air. What happens after we die? And it's always amazing the kinds of different theories um, that we hear. But when we have questions like that, and then we hear Jesus' word from the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, we hear... Well, some of the answers that we want to hear, right? The answers to the questions that we have. In fact, that line from Jesus on the cross has become, in many ways, a proof text. A proof text for different theologies and different ways of looking at the afterlife. In the Reformed Church, for one, it's become sort of a proof text against this idea of soul sleep, 
right? Some people believe that, that when we die, what happens is we actually go to sleep from the time that we die until that time that Jesus comes again with the resurrection of all people, the time that he judges all people. And in between those two times, our souls just sort of go to sleep and we don't wake up, we don't remember anything until Jesus returns. And then we look at Jesus' word and we say, well, that can't be true because Jesus says right here, today you will be with me in paradise. We also use this as a proof text sort of against the whole idea of purgatory. Purgatory is that idea that um, before we just go to heaven, we also have to do some work to pay for the sins that, that we have committed. And and this text is often thrown out there as saying, well, that can't be true either because here we have a criminal who dies on the cross who admits that he's done things that are wrong. He's, he's being treated justly by being crucified on the cross. And yet, Jesus doesn't say, well, I'll see you in 10 years after you're done, you know, sort of paying for your own sins. No, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so, in that way, this text has, has sort of become a proof text for a lot of different points of views and positions for what actually happens after we die. But I wonder if, if those weren't our questions to begin with. I wonder if we were perhaps different people in a different time or people coming out of a different situation if we might have some different sorts of questions I don't know. Are there things that we might miss about a text like this? Probably. What I'd like to do this morning is, is offer you maybe three other things, at least, that we can find, I think, in a text such as this. Um, so I'll offer those to you. You can think later whether, uh, yeah, that sounded like it might be there or it's not. The first one is this. I think this text talks about our need for the Holy Spirit. Our need for the Holy Spirit. We, we can't forget where this conversation actually takes place. Okay? It doesn't take place in a coffee shop. It doesn't take place across a kitchen table or in the front of the car. This is a conversation that takes place on the cross. The cross is sort of central to our faith. It's sort of central to the Gospels. It's the peak of the Gospels, right? It's where everything is headed. This is where Jesus has been headed since the day he was born. The cross is the culmination of, of his passion. It symbolizes the punishment of the sins of all of mankind. It's the cross that divides all of history, right? Into the things that happened before and the things that have happened after. It's all the cross of Jesus, and it's on the cross that these words are spoken. We can't forget that. Further, as we said a few weeks ago, Luke, in this text in particular, informs us that there was a certain spirit in the air at the cross. There was a spirit of disbelief. There was a spirit of, of doubt. There's a spirit of mockery going on here. There's a spirit of murder. If you are the Messiah, we hear these words from everyone around the cross. If you are the Christ, 
If you are a king, if you are the Son of God, then what? Well, if you are these things, then save yourself. If you are these things, then save yourself and save us. You see, there is this idea in people's minds that a king will not suffer, right? We can't reconcile these ideas of a king and a cross, of glory and shame together, of power and humility in the same place. It's really the same problem that that people have with Jesus today. It hasn't changed. If Jesus was God, then why did he die? Why couldn't he have just snapped his fingers and made everything good again? If Jesus was God, why didn't he just make things right apart from the cross? Why did he have to die? No God would die. And so we have this spirit of disbelief around the cross, this human perception of what it means to be God, and Jesus simply does not fit that perception. And so Jesus is totally alone on the cross. No one understands. No one gets it. And then, suddenly, without any explanation whatsoever, there is one who seems to be able to see it all clearly. One who is able to penetrate the fog of misunderstanding that surrounds the cross the fog that conceals the true meaning of what it is to be the king of the Jews. There is one for whom it all becomes clear what the Messiah is, what a true king is. It all becomes clear that saving actually meant remaining on the cross right there where he was. There's one person who gets it. And he's not a religious leader. He's not a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's a criminal. He's not a saint. He's a criminal. He's not a good criminal, like we make him out to be, probably, in our own minds. Well, he must have been, you know, condemned unjustly. He's a criminal. There are a couple of things about this man, though. First of all, he recognizes that Jesus is a king. Nobody else does. But he says specifically, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. He recognizes that Jesus is a king. For him, there's there's no contrast. There's no paradox. The second thing about him is, is he never asks Jesus, therefore, to step down off the cross never asks him to come down, never challenges him to come down. For some reason, he seems to understand that a true king would actually remain on the cross. That a true king would want to give himself for his people. That a true king would want to save others before he saves himself. Like I said, for this man, there's there's no paradox here in Jesus being on the cross. And how do we explain that? How do we account for this one man recognizing what nobody else could? 
what nobody else saw. There, there are some possible answers to that, right? Let's think about those for a moment. For starters, this man, like I said, was a criminal. Matthew and Mark, they define him as a robber, which was a very specific kind of criminal, obviously. The word Luke uses here is just that he's a, an evildoer. He's a worker of evil. Okay? The translation is a nice one. He was a criminal. But he's a worker of evil. Now, we said before that Jesus' words from the cross are not so much new information to us as they are sort of his entire ministry wrapped up in a nutshell, sort of condensed into seven last words. Let's think about that in terms of Jesus. Who did he say that he came to save? Sinners. Those who are sick. The ones who need a doctor, he said. Who is it that Jesus was always criticized for hanging out with? Prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. And who is it at the very end that we still find Jesus literally hanging out with? Sinners, evildoers. So, maybe this man had sort of an inside track with Jesus. I mean, maybe criminals, evildoers, just see things that others don't. You know, maybe bankers and teachers and medical professionals don't see these kinds of things criminals do see. Or maybe this man actually knew Jesus better than anyone else did. If you look at the text... He calls Jesus by his first name. How do you think that happened? Where do you think they got to know each other? Jesus, remember me, he says. Maybe they did hang out together on the corner. Maybe he did hear Jesus preaching and teaching. Maybe he did experience Jesus' empathy and love in the past. Maybe they were familiar. Maybe they just met on the street and he never forgot. But he must have known Jesus because he did know that Jesus was righteous, didn't he? I mean, he confesses right here that, you know, he and his buddy in crime, they're getting exactly what they deserve. But Jesus, he says, or of Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. That much he knew. And maybe that was it. Maybe seeing a righteous man hung on a cross, maybe that's what made it all click for him. Maybe that's when it all came into focus for him. Seeing Jesus on the cross. After all, who of us can be saved without seeing Jesus actually on the cross? None of us. In Mark's gospel, right, if you recall Mark's gospel, there's sort of a mystery throughout the whole gospel as to who this man Jesus really is. And if anyone even suspects that he might be the Son of God, Jesus kind of stifles that notion right there himself. He says, don't tell anybody about this. And it's not until you get to the very end of the gospel where you see this centurion standing up, looking at Jesus on the cross as he takes his last breath, as he cries out, 
And that man makes the only confession in the Gospel of Mark, truly this man was the Son of God. And Mark is telling us, look, it takes more than understanding that Jesus was a miracle worker, or he was a great teacher, or he was a man of power. You have to be able to recognize that this is the Son of God, a righteous one who is dying on the cross for my sins and for your sins. He is the Son of God. You've got to see the cross. And yet, it doesn't explain it all, does it? I mean, there are others there who are watching Jesus die as well. They don't seem to put the pieces into place. And there was another criminal there, right? Just on the other side of Jesus. Another evildoer. He didn't seem to recognize Jesus any more than anyone else did. He didn't recognize Jesus' kingship. He didn't recognize that Jesus had to stay up there on the cross. Aren't you the Christ, he says? Save yourself and us. It's all a big mockery. So how do we account for this one who kind of sees through it all, who perceives the truth? Well, maybe there was another spirit at work that day. Not just the spirit of doubt, a spirit of disbelief, but a Holy Spirit. Friends, this is what we confess. The real power of the cross cannot be seen, cannot be understood, unless the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes and breathes life into us that wasn't there before. There's really no other explanation for why some see it and some do not. The Holy Spirit must make the death of Jesus on the cross come alive to us. Otherwise, he remains dead. So if you haven't before, that's the place to start. It's to pray that the Holy Spirit will actually open our eyes to see who this is and what he's all about. The second thing about this Spirit is, is he, he shapes our view of ourselves. I think he, he, he helps us see who we really are. If you think of it in, in terms of some image, think of the cross piece that Jesus hangs on. Notice the bare wood. Notice how bare it is, except for Jesus' open arms. And notice, too, how stripped down is the man that Jesus welcomes with those open arms. Notice for a moment how humble a request this really is that comes from this criminal. He doesn't ask for forgiveness, does he? He doesn't ask for salvation. He doesn't ask for heaven. He certainly doesn't ask for well, one place at your right hand and one at your left when you come into your kingdom. All he says is, remember me. 
That's his request. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Not only is that a humble request, it's a sparse request. If you notice here, there are no resume rememberings here. He doesn't say, remember, remember Jesus, this whole list of things that I've done. This whole list of things for which other people remember me. I think we all have those things, don't we? The things that we sort of feel define us in life and, and define us for other people. You know, I've got a few things like that when I remember the things that sort of define me or want to define me. You know, um, winning a state championship in basketball back in high school, that's something that's always stuck with me. Um, looking at me now, you would never believe it, right? I remember the joys of, uh, of leading our first youth group. It was like 12 kids and the joy of actually getting them from Grand Rapids to Detroit and back, and everyone made it back alive. We, we went in a borrowed van, right? It was, a, it was a Chevy van, an old Chevy van with a diesel engine. And to start the thing, it was like you had to turn the key and hit the dashboard a couple of times, and it was stuff like that. Really, I was happy to make it back alive. Those are the kinds of things that, that sort of define us the memories, the resume builders, and we all have them. They're the stuff that makes me, me. This man on the cross, he didn't have any of those. Not anymore. He doesn't say, Jesus, remember how I made first chair in Youth Symphony? He doesn't say, Jesus, remember my first job, what that was like and, and how far I've come? He doesn't say, um, Jesus, remember the birth of my first child and, and how my life just sort of took on meaning from that point on? All he says is, remember me. Some of us don't understand what that's like. You have to maybe put yourself not in someone else's shoes, but in your own shoes, the potential that's in your heart. What I mean by that is, imagine your kind of Breaking Bad story. I don't know if you saw that television show or not, but it's kind of a show about all that we are capable of and don't think we are as sinners. Imagine yourself breaking bad. Maybe your sports gambling becomes an addiction. And you blow through all of your savings. And then you blow through your retirement account. And then without your wife's knowledge, you, you blow through your, or you sell your house or your mortgage and blow through that. Your spouse doesn't know any of this, and so you can't talk to her. You begin to embezzle funds at work to pay all the bills. You can't believe that you're doing it. You can't believe it yourself, but you are. 
Like I said, you can't tell your wife about this, and so you've got secrets between you, and you start to share with somebody at work, and pretty soon you run off with her. You leave your spouse and your children in the dust without an explanation. And finally, it all begins to catch up with you. Law catches up. Your new girlfriend finds a better option. Your kids won't talk to you. Your own parents are ashamed of you. Your in-laws think of reconciling with you, inviting you over for dinner, only so they can poison your mashed potatoes. Nobody wants to remember you. In fact, people would prefer to forget you. You would like to forget yourself. What do you do? Can you hear now this man's request? Jesus, remember me. Not what I've done. Just remember me. Remember the me before all of this started, before everything went sideways. In fact, remember me before the layers of trauma I experienced as a kid and the trauma I've inflicted on everybody else around me. Remember the me that I can't even seem to remember anymore. Remember the me that God created good. Remember the me who used to be able to laugh and smile at beautiful things. Remember the me that was created in God's own image. Remember the me that that God created with dignity and and to live in relationship with himself. Remember, Remember me. And your only hope, friends, your only hope is that Jesus is the kind of person who actually can and wants to remember you. This man has nothing on the cross with him. He has no pride, no accomplishments, no ego, just himself. Remember me. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He cuts through all of the stuff. And he reveals to us who we really are. And then he reveals to us that Jesus is the kind of Savior who actually wants to remember you. There's one other thing um, that the Holy Spirit does, and, and that is he shapes our view of paradise as well. Um, Again, if you want an image, think of the vertical post of the cross. The post that holds Jesus' body. There's nothing else on that post. It's just the body of Jesus. I think we can think of it as the post of paradise. Let's think about paradise. What, What is it? Um, When Jesus says today you will be with me in paradise, what does he mean? That word is used in three ways, really, in in Scripture. In the Old Testament, 
it, it literally means um, a walled garden. It was the kind of garden that only a king like Jesus would, would have. It was a place to go and rest and relax and be refreshed. It was a place of beauty, all of that. In the Old Testament, it refers basically to that place we left behind, the Garden of Eden. It's that place behind us. The second way that this word is used, paradise, um, is it's, it's still that place of bliss and that place of rest, but it's sort of that place that we go, it's sort of a holding tank after we die. So when we die and before Jesus comes in the resurrection, we go to a place called paradise, and that's where we wait for our Lord to come. There's a third way that that word is used in the New Testament, and that's to refer to the fullness of the new creation, the fullness of heaven, you might say. That, that's a view of paradise as, as well. And most Christians agree that when Jesus is talking on the cross here, he's, he's using that second idea of what paradise is. And he's saying, you know, today you'll be with me in that, in that place where we wait for the resurrection together. I wouldn't argue against that idea in any way. In fact, I've, I've argued for that idea many times. But I also think that it's, it's quite possible, even when you have that understanding of this text, that we're missing something, that there's something a little bit more here that Jesus wants us to see. And I think we miss at times the corrective that's, that's assumed in Jesus' language. The evildoer here, he wants Jesus to remember him right? And if you're going to remember someone, he's speaking of the future. When you come into your kingdom sometime in the future, I want you to look back and I want you to remember me. And Jesus offers a corrective. And he says, today, not sometime in the future, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the that's the when of paradise. It's not tomorrow. It's not after we die. It's not come the resurrection or come Easter Sunday. It's today. That's the when of paradise. And then there's also aware of paradise, the where of paradise. And sometimes we miss this. Today you will be what? With me in paradise. You will be with me. And we think, obviously, that means heaven. And we miss that with me. Could it be possible that what Jesus is saying is that paradise is wherever I am? Paradise is wherever I am. And therefore, paradise can actually be right here on the cross. And we think, ah, that's, that's not possible. We have all of these popular notions of paradise, don't we? Um, it's the good place. It's, it's heaven. It's the place where all of our loved ones are going to be, and we'll, we'll meet up again together sometime. Even Muslim jihadists have, have an idea of paradise, and usually includes lots of young, lovely maidens and good food and oases in the desert and those sorts of things. Have you ever noticed how few of those pictures of paradise actually involve Jesus or include Jesus? 
Very few of them. People seem to want to go up to heaven, but they never talk about Jesus. The cross strips everything away from Jesus. He has nothing. He has no royal robes. He has no sandals. He doesn't even have underwear. He has nothing on the cross. And in the same way, I think the cross strips down everything from paradise except one thing. There's no palm trees. There's no harps. There's no mansions with many rooms. There's just Jesus. And it's enough. It's more than enough. Have you ever been on a service project among the poor? Maybe to the developing world, maybe who knows where. Maybe it's Zuni this summer. If you've ever gone on a project like that or know someone who, who did, you probably remember hearing this kind of statement. They were so poor, but they were so happy. They seem so happy. And we cannot reconcile those ideas. How could that be? They were so poor, but they were so happy. And we ask the very same question about the persecuted church, for instance. We hear the stories of these brothers and sisters of ours who are persecuted, and, and they make testimonies like this. They say, well, they can take our houses, they can take our families, but they can't take our joy. And we're like, what? What are you talking about? Joy in persecution? We don't understand how those things can be reconciled. Poverty and happiness, persecution and joy, poverty and paradise, persecution and paradise, crucifixion and paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. You see how quickly we sort of jump to the future? We get out of the present as fast as we can and, and we jump to another time and another place. Jesus must be talking about after they're both dead, then they'll be in paradise together. Maybe that's what Jesus means. And I wonder if that's because that's what the text really says or it's because of what we believe paradise to be and happiness to be. Have we fallen for the world's definition of happiness, perhaps? What's the world's definition of happiness? Well, lots of money, right? And big fancy homes. And lots of money. And picture-perfect families. And lots of money. And high-powered jobs. And lots of money. And fancy vacations. And lots of money. And lots of free time. And that's happiness, and that's paradise. And we believe it. Friends, how many people do you know who have all of those things and they're still looking for happiness? 
We all know them. We all know people like that. And yet we still believe it. And it makes us avoid any hill with a cross because that's not paradise. Joy can't be there. Happiness can't be there. And so any person that appears difficult to us, any cause that that we can't conquer in our own strength, in our own time, any situation that's a little bit uncomfortable, we avoid that. We never go there. Even if Jesus is there and we miss him. Poverty and happiness, persecution and joy, kings and criminals together. And yet some of us have been granted eyes to see, eyes to see paradise where others have missed it. We've heard their testimonies. Leo Tolstoy once wrote these words. He said, five years ago I came to believe in Christ's teaching and my life suddenly changed. I ceased to desire what I had previously desired and I began to desire what I formerly did not want. What had previously seemed to me good seemed evil and what previously seemed evil seemed good. What's he saying? He's saying my perception of paradise totally changed. The things that I thought could never be paradise, all of a sudden I saw that's where paradise is. We find a similar sentiment from the psalmist, Psalm 84. What did he say? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And I know that, you know, the idea of tents is revolting to a lot of us because we don't like camping. So this is how Eugene Peterson translated that. He said, one day in your house, O God, beats a thousand spent on Greek island beaches. I'd rather scrub floors in the house of my God than be honored as a guest in the palace of sin. What happened? His eyes were opened. I would rather be what? With God, with Christ. Doesn't matter where he is. Then there's the Apostle Paul. I consider everything, my whole life, everything I've accomplished, I consider it all garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's all that matters to me. Once I knew him, everything else didn't matter. Basically, what each of them is saying is, I would rather be hanging on a cross with Jesus Christ than living in a mansion without him. I have found paradise. This is what Jesus is inviting us into, friends. He's inviting us into paradise, into life with him. Not 
someday, not sometime in the future, not after we die, but right here, right now. It's available to each and every one of us. Paradise in the waiting. Pray that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to see it and accept it. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for cutting through all of the stuff that fogs our vision. It keeps us from seeing who the true king is and what the true king is all about. Thank you for your invitation to be with you today in paradise and by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes and make it real to each and every one of us and may we carry that message to all those around us that they too can live in paradise today by being with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.